If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open it up to Mark uh, chapter 6, and we'll be starting at verse 30, and I'll be reading through verse 44. I'll give you a few moments to get it and ask that you would uh, read along with me or look on the screen. This is the written and living, inspired Word of God. It is inerrant and it is infallible, and it is profitable to train us in righteousness, to mature us in our faith, to shape and mold us after our Maker. It is alive, and uh, I pray that God will do all of that through our time. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many people were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Not many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is the desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up their twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, pray now that you would bless your servant as we read and now proclaim and hear your word. Father, I uh, stand before your people as a man in need of the very grace and the very beauty and the very love of Christ that we will proclaim. And so I do pray that you would be pleased to use your servant, to build up your kingdom, that your people might be blessed and they might love and savor Jesus more than anything. That's our prayer. We pray for this hour in Christ's name. Amen. I want us to think about this question this morning. What's so special about the dinner in the desolate place? What's so special about this dinner in the desolate place? And I'll make the case to you this morning that this isn't just a dinner, it's a feast. It's a feast that is teeming with bread and fish, so much so that there is food left over. What's so special about this dinner in the desolate place? In last week's message, we learned that King Herod, or the supposed King Herod, had just had John the Baptist beheaded. John the Baptist, the voice crying out in the wilderness, was silenced. 
and his head was cut off and it was brought in on a platter and all the guests mocked and scoffed. And the backdrop to that murder, the murder of God's anointed, it was a feast, a feast that Herod threw on Herod's birthday. And if you look at the passage before us up in verse 21 of chapter 6, notice who was at Herod's feast. Look at verse 21 of Mark chapter 6. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Who was in the room with Herod on his birthday feast where John the Baptist's head was bought in on a platter? It was all the important people, all the powerful people, and all the strong and mighty people in Herod's regime. It was them around and at this party. And the question that we have to ask is, what happens if you're not a royal dignitary? What happens if you're not a noble man? What happens if you're not in his army? What happens if you're not one of the leading men of Galilee? You see, they had Herod and his protection on their side, but what happened if you were a peasant? And he just killed the Lord's anointed and put his head on a platter. That would have sent shockwaves through the kingdom. I'd imagine they're afraid and they're fearful and they're worried and they see his unbridled power and they see what he can do in a minute and they're wondering who's going to protect us? Who's going to fight for us? Who's going to give us protection? You see, this is one of the miracles that's in all four gospel accounts. And if you look at John chapter 6, John tells you what these people were thinking. John chapter 6, verse 15, it actually says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew from them. You want to know what's going through the hearts of those people who weren't in that room? We need a king. And we need a king now. We need a king who can defeat Herod. We need a king who can stand against his tyranny. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Haven't we seen Jesus raise a dead little girl? Haven't we seen him cure leprosy? Haven't we seen him do all of these mighty works? And so in their mind, there is one person in this region of the earth who can stand toe-to-toe with Herod, and his name is Jesus. And as a matter of fact, he just gave authority to his disciples, and he sent his disciples out, and his disciples cast out demons and healed people. And so now they're thinking, we found the man, and he's sharing his power. They want a king. They want Jesus. And did you notice what Jesus does in the passage? He is so unbothered by Herod and his goons family. Look at what happens in verse 39. He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Only Mark tells us the grass was green. This ought to jog your memory, right? This ought to remind you of Psalm 23, 
where David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. And he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. What you have Jesus doing in this passage is in the backdrop of murder, of tyranny, of rebellion, of idolatry. When people are afraid for their lives, Jesus takes them to a desolate place and he finds green grass. And he says, look, don't y'all worry about him. You're riding with me. And I say right now, sit down, and we're going to feast. The backdrop to the passage is fear and hardship and uncertainty. Can you relate to that? When you enter those seasons in your life where you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, when you enter those seasons in your life, when it does not feel like the Lord is on the throne, when you enter those seasons in your life where you're, you're lonely, you're sad, you're afflicted, and you're bruised, and you worry, is my king with me? And the question is yes. Yes. This passage is a passage of comfort, of hope, of security, of rest. And to get at it, I want to think through this idea of contrast. Why is this dinner in the desolate place important? I want to answer that, but I want you to think through it with me through this image of contrast. And I'm going to give you the four points. The first point, Jesus is a better king than Herod. And he has a feast waiting for God's people. That's the first point. The second point, you know, I won't give you the second point. I'll let you wait a little bit. Jesus is a better king than Herod. And he has a feast waiting for you. Look, feasting is a part of the Bible. Did you know that the Bible ends with a feast? The marriage supper of the Lamb. That the moment Jesus returns for his bride, your eternity with your Savior will kick off with a feast, a lavish feast. And this was not just true in the New Testament at the end of time. This was actually, did you know Israel, they were commanded to have a feast at an appointed time of the year. The Lord says, drink wine until your heart is content. He says, slaughter your best calf, your best animals. And this is a feast unto the Lord. Feasting. And it's not a coincidence that, that, that Mark puts this feast that Jesus is doing right on the heels of the feast that Herod just threw. Herod threw a party, and it was a banquet, and all the important people were there, and at the center of it was murder and corruption and idolatry. And here's the thing, Jesus' feast is better. Now, why is Jesus' feast better? It's better by sheer numbers. 
Herod only had a select few. You know what Mark tells us? It was 5,000 men. And so look at the contrast. In, in, in chapter 6, verse 21, it says that Herod gave a, a banquet for his nobles, and that's in the Greek masculine. So these are men, his noble men, his military commanders, his men, and the leading men of Galilee. And you want to know what Mark does? Mark says, Jesus got a feast. And look at what he says in verse 44. And, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, this doesn't mean women and children weren't there, but I think there's a contrast going on. Herod has a select few, and Jesus has a lot of folks out there. We think that there was anywhere between five and 15,000 people at Jesus' feast because you got women and children there with him. It's also better when you look at the quality of the people there. Now, what do I mean by quality? Herod's feast was the elite, the creme de la creme. But did you notice what Jesus says to the disciples? He says, look, I want you to go and search. Search for food out of these 5,000 men, 15,000 maybe people all together, and come back and tell me what you find. You want to know what they came back with? They came back with five pieces of bread and two fish out of 5,000 men. That's all the food you got? Now, here's what's beautiful when you see these miracles in all gospel accounts. Mark, Matthew, and Luke, they all tell, use the generic phrase for bread and for fish. The only one who gives us more specifics is John. And John says, these aren't the five loaves of bread that you're thinking about or that you see in your children's Bible. This isn't the two big fish that you're probably thinking about. John actually uses a totally different word. He does not use the word for bread. The, John actually says what they brought forth was barley cakes. Now, what's a barley cake? You know what? It's poor man's food. Not poor. This is poor man's food, right? This is not even the fresh hot bread. This is like I'm using the inferior grain to make what I can make, Doc. On top of that, the word for fish that John uses is not the generic word for fish. He uses what we might consider a sardine. I heard some of y'all say, ugh, right? <laughs> it's the fish that's so small, you got no meat off of it. It's the fish that you would flay open and you would use it like butter on your barley cakes. In other words, this is a poor man's meal. Kids, when the next time your parents go to the store, tell them to go by the aisle and get you some canned sardines and you get you some hot sauce and some crackers. And, you, and, you, and that's what you go eat. Now you're walking back into this miracle right here, right? Gary Bird says this about this. He says, these are not affluent people. This particular crowd was composed of the working poor. We must keep in mind that Galilee was a poor society it was a peasant agrarian society 
where farmers were heavily taxed and frequently lost their land to a wealthier elite who would pay their taxes when they fell behind. And yet Jesus maintains a real interest in these people. In Herod's feast, it's the elite. Jesus throws a party and it's with the poor. A lot of them. His feast is better. His feast is also better because of the reason Jesus throws the party. Herod throws the party to take life and to celebrate himself. It was his birthday. Why is Jesus throwing the feast? Not to take life, but to sustain life. Herod uses food as a vehicle to be given over to idolatry and lust and murder. And here you have Jesus who was using this meal to complement his teaching. The Bible, it actually says he spent all day long teaching them God's word. And at the end of the day, he fed them with bread. This is the kind of feast where your king cares about your spiritual needs and the needs of the body, your body and your soul, this king cares for. We also learn that who served at Jesus' feast? At Herod's feet, Herod, Herod was served, and here you have Jesus, the leading servant. He's the one taking the posture of a servant. He's the one who's taking the little that these poor people have and turning it into a lot so that he might serve them. And who is praised at Jesus' feast? In verse 41, Jesus looks to heaven and he says a blessing. Jesus knows who is on the throne. And he turns and he gives honor and reverence and praise to the king of kings. This is his feast. I think what Mark is doing is contrasting the kingship of Herod and the kingship of Jesus. And think about when you feast. Think about when your favorite team grinds out the football season and they throw the feast at the end. I got this image of Michael Jordan when his dad died and he won that championship and you just see him on the floor weeping with champagne being splattered everywhere and a cigar and it's the end of a fight, a long and arduous fight. Now we celebrate and here is what Jesus is doing. I'm going to go fight for you and when I win, we're going to party. We're going to party. And at my table, I don't care if you're powerless. At my table, I don't care if you're no-named. At my table, your poverty does not remove you from the table. My table is big, and as a matter of fact, I am not working off of scarcity. Did you read the text? It actually says after all the people ate, they actually had 12 baskets of more food left over. Please get out of your mind that Jesus is only serving appetizers at this feast. It reads as if he has a buffet 
with a lot of food to spare. Come eat until your heart is content because I got it all, is what Jesus is saying. And did you know Isaiah talks about the feast? Isaiah says, on this mountain, the Lord will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. That the image of the gospel is this, when our eternities begin, it begins with a feast. And you know what Isaiah also says? He says, come everyone to this feast who thirsts. Come to the waters, even you who have no money. Come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Well, wait a minute. Is it a free feast, Pastor L? Yes, it's free for you, but it's costly for the Messiah. You see, Herod is celebrating his day of birth. What Jesus is doing is foreshadowing his death. I will pay the entrance fee to my feast. I'm the king, strong and mighty in battle. I desire to lavish you with a spread, and I'm going to pay the cost for it. He's a better king than Herod. He has a better feast than Herod. Now, here's the question. To know that there is a feast. All right, I'm going to do some. All right, let's just assume that right over here we got this feast. Right. This lavish feast where Jesus and his bride were together, were with him. This is where the feast is. Here's the question that we have to ask. How do I know and how do you know right where we are right now at 640 East Northside Drive that we're going to make it to that feast? That's the million dollar question. If it's that good and he's that good, brother, I won't end on it. Right. Here's the next good news from the passage. Jesus is a better Moses. And he will get you to it. Jesus is the better shepherd than Moses. And he himself will make sure that his people gets to his feast. Now, I know some of y'all looking like Pastor L, ain't no Moses nowhere in Mark chapter 6. What are you talking about? Stay with me. You do know that one of the biggest frames in the Old Testament is that of the wilderness. It's when Moses went into Egypt by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, and he delivered them. And on the night before they were delivered, there was the Passover where the angel of death passed over the people of Israel. And the Lord brought them out of Egypt and out into the wilderness. Right. Remember that? Now, that's big, right? Did you notice this phrase, the desolate place is mentioned three times in our passage and verse 31, verse 32 and verse 35. All of this is happening in the desolate place. Now, here's what you might not know. The same word for desolate place in this chapter is the same word for wilderness in Mark chapter 1. The same Greek word. I kind of wish that they would have not messed with the translation. If you're going to say wilderness over here in Mark chapter 1, then brother, just say wilderness over here in Mark chapter 6. John the Baptist was baptizing where? In the wilderness. Jesus was baptized and then sent out into where? 
the wilderness. And now you get to Mark chapter 6, and the disciples return from everything they're doing, and the people are where? They're in the desolate place. They're in the wilderness. So that, that's one checkbox, right? I got vocabulary working in my favor from here, right? What else happened in the wilderness? What did Moses do when he got to a certain mountain? And he got what? The Ten Commandments, and he taught Israel. Did you notice what Jesus did all day for these people? Look in verse 34. It actually says he taught them many things, and he began to teach them many things. Now, turn with me over to John chapter 6. Now, most of y'all in your Bibles, you're going to see John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the 6. What does it say in verse 3? Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, turn back to Mark real quick. You catch this? They're in the wilderness. John actually says this is happening on a mountain. And Jesus is teaching them from a mountain. And John also tells you what time of year was this when this was going on. It was during the Passover. You convinced yet? What did God feed Israel with in the wilderness? It was manna, the bread from heaven, and he gave them meat, the quail. What is Jesus doing here? He's giving them bread and meat in the wilderness after he teaches them from the mountain. And in case you're not convinced, look at the phrase in verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You do know that Jesus did not invent that language. Frankie just read it. That sheep without a shepherd image you want to know the first person to say that? Moses. Moses gets to look into the promised land. And the Lord tells him, you cannot go over. You can see it, but you cannot go over because you sin. And like your brother, you too will die. And what does Moses do when the Lord drops that news on him? He says, the Lord, 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 will you please appoint someone else to carry them over so that they will not be like sheep without a shepherd? You see? And who does the Lord anoint? He anoints Joshua. Joshua will take them into the land. And does not Jesus' name sound just like Joshua. 
Joshua, Yeshua, it means the same thing. The Lord Yahweh will save. You think this is a coincidence what Jesus is doing? He's telling Israel, I got a feast for you. And can't nobody get you to it but me. Moses could not give you this feast. He was a sinner. He knew the law and he broke the law. And he died outside of the land of promise. Joshua brought you into the land, but he could not keep you in the land. You need a better Moses, and you need a better shepherd than Joshua. And you're looking at him right now, is what Jesus is saying. I will take you into the land. Moses had the law, and it brought condemnation. Moses struck the rock, and Paul says, Moses struck me. I'm going to die. I'm the great shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I will take you into the land. That's good news, family. The God who throws the feast is the God who makes sure that you and I get to the feast that he is throwing. When we're united with him by faith, he sovereignly acts on our behalf and our good. And so I know life is hard right now. And I know it feels like that feast is not awaiting you right now. And I know it feels like your king is not on the throne right now. But I want to tell you, we are wandering right now on this earth, but it is not aimlessly. He is taking us somewhere. He is bringing us to himself and the feast that he has for us. He is the better Moses. The third thing I think we see in this passage is Jesus is a better disciple than the disciples. If, if you're like me, man, I, I struggle, right? I get it in my mind. I get it that you're sovereign and you have a feast. And I get it that like you're Moses and you're going to take me there. But in my heart of hearts, I struggle with man. Well, I disqualify myself, right? I struggle. Will, will my heart be given over to something or things that will detract my commitment to the Lord. I struggle. Will, will I be the person who casts out demons in his name and proclaims mighty words in his name? And then I get before him and he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you, right? That stuff, it, it traumatized me. It makes me nervous. It makes me anxious. And if you're really, really honest, you ought to take apostasy in the Bible for real. And here is the good news in the passage. Jesus isn't just throwing a better feast. 
He isn't just the better Moses, but if we understand the Bible correctly, he's a better disciple than you and I will ever be. And I think you see it flushed out in this passage. Did you notice the backdrop to this? Back earlier in the text, the disciples went out, they taught, they preached, they healed, they cast out demons, and they come back to Jesus rejoicing over everything they did. And then Jesus says, okay, quiet down, let us go to a desolate place, right? And in my mind, if I'm looking at them in terms of, all right, on their best day, they was killing it, right? Man, they were steadfast, they were faithful, serving the Lord, effective. And then you get to this passage. And if you want to ask me, I think they're fumbling. I think they're dropping the ball here. Now, why do I think they're dropping the ball? Because did you catch their attitude towards the crowd versus Jesus' attitude toward the crowd? How does Jesus view this crowd? He says he views them like sheep without a shepherd. And notice the dominant pronoun in verses 34 through 35. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The emphasis there for Mark is that Jesus is the only one who looks at them with compassion. He is the only one who wants to teach them into the night. What do the disciples want to do with the people? Look at the text in verse 36, in, in verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Can we send them away to get into the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy their own food? What are they saying? They're saying, Jesus, we're tired of people. We've done all of this stuff and we have nothing more in us. Why don't you send them away? They are disturbing our rest and our peace. They are a nuisance to us right now. And on top of this, they're poor. You see their attitude? Send them away. Send them away. Send them away. Send them away. And what does Jesus say? We're not going to send them away. He says, feed them. And they are flustered. They're like, Jesus, what you want us to do? 200 denarii? A denarius is what an average Jewish worker got for one day's wages. And so their question is, Jesus, you want us to spend one year's salary to feed these people? Now, here's the irony. The irony of the passage is go in your Bibles and look at chapter 6 and go down to verse 8. I'm going to start at verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. Don't take no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but wear sandals and not put on two tunics. You get the image? They're returning back. Jesus, you just told us to empty our pockets. We don't have money. And yet you tell us right here to come up with enough money to feed these people. What is Jesus up to? You don't have it in you 
to love and serve people like you ought to. You're tired and you're ready to quit. And since when does God's commandments free you when you're tired to not obey? I know you've been rocking all day for the Lord, but since when do we not care about the poor? I know you've been rocking all day with the Lord, and now you got this crowd here. Since when is it okay to not serve and love and, and submit to them? Jesus is actually showing them this is the type of radical faith and radical spirit-empowered obedience that I'm calling you to. When you're tired, you keep going. And when you're weary, you keep going. And when you are powerless, you keep going. And here's the thing, they can't do it. And Jesus says, now you understand the gospel. See, I'm not just throwing a feast because I'm a better king. I'm not just going to get you to the feast because I'm a better Moses. I'm the obedience you need. And can you believe this, Christian, for you and I who wrestle with our own obedience and if it sort of merits our ability to be at the feast, Jesus says, I don't need your obedience to get to my feast. You need this radical obedience that I give. And he models it for us in this passage. We could say this, that Jesus is obeying and unwavering for you and I when we waver and when we're tired. That is the kind of obedience that is counted to your account if you're a Christian. He's a better disciple than all the disciples. And this complaint, right, has been lodged against Christians for ages, right? And I get it. Some of you in this room don't believe. And, 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 and one of the reasons you don't believe right now is because you see the distance between who Christians are and who we're supposed to be. That's why Gandhi said what? I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. The disconnect. It's what Frederick Douglass said. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ, and therefore I hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. That was Frederick Douglass' complaint against white Christians. That was Gandhi's complaint against Christians. And if you're in this room this morning, this is true for all of us. None of us in this room are these type, this type of disciple. None of us in this room can say in our heart of hearts that I am the perfect disciple, that my heart is always pure, it is always right, it is always ready to serve. That's not true. You get tired of people, and you don't want to serve people. And here is the good news. Jesus is the better disciple. 
I hear the complaint that we lodge against Christians. And you know what? The Bible would not argue with it. There is one good disciple. And his name is Jesus. And he is the guarantee that if you are in him, you will make it to the feast because of his obedience on your behalf. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I'd invite you to not let this be a barrier, but a bridge. Because when you put faith in Jesus, you're going to experience the new birth. You're going to experience the new man. And you're going to see the old man or the old woman still alive. And until we get to the feast, it's a struggle. Welcome to the club, okay? Welcome to the club. So what do we do? We're not home yet. What do we do right here and now? While in the present, we serve him and we sit with him. That's the beauty of the passage. Did you notice that Jesus tells the disciples, come away and sit with me? Did you notice that when he does the miracles, he always involves the disciples? He says, you go count. You go tell me what you have. And even when Jesus blesses the food and gives it to the people, he gives it to the people through the work of the disciples. And that is the invitation. We are not serving Jesus in order to get to the feast. We're serving Jesus because our table at the feast is already, our seat at the feast is already there and he's put it there. And so how then do we live now? We serve him and we sit with him and we let him do the miraculous work of calling more people to his feast. That's why the dinner in the desolate place is important. We see a better king. We see a better Moses. We see a better disciple. And we're better because of him. Let's pray. Our Father, our prayer is that we would bow and worship and love you and adore you more this day. I pray for those who don't know you. Might today be a day of salvation. I pray for those who are in the wilderness and the desolate place. Might you show yourself faithful. Would you give them green pastures to sit upon Would you shower them with your love? Would you feed them by your spirit and your word? Would you increase their faith? Would you mitigate their doubts? And would you remind them of the feast that awaits us? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.